Scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 4, starting at verse uh, 23 and reading to the end of the chapter. You'll find this in the Pew Bibles on page 1081. Acts, chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign God, sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the fastest growing sports in North America is spelling. Hundreds of thousands of people in North America and all over the world follow and participate in something called the spelling bee. And uh, just this week, just a few days ago, a young man named uh, Karthik Namani won the prestigious Scripps Spelling Bee Contest. Um, If you get any news feeds on your phone, it would have popped up on your phone. It was uh, mainstream news on all of the outlets. Uh, It was a contest where um, um, Karthik, who was not a top-ranked speller, but obviously a good one, 
probably a better speller than most of us, for sure a better speller than me. Anyway, the final showdown for the contest came down and Karthik won this enormously prestigious and important for hundreds of thousands of people, particularly parents on steroids maybe, for spelling the word koinonia. He won the contest by spelling the word koinonia. Now, many of you might not know this, but the word koinonia is actually a New Testament word. It's a word that is repeated in the New Testament 20 times, and it is the word that we most popularly translate as fellowship or community. It's a very distinctive Christian word, and I wonder, when I saw that news, I wonder if the attention of Christians would have been given to the fact that one of our key words, and in fact, one of the key words in the book of Acts, is a word that was used so prominently and powerfully as a kind of reminder to Christians of the character of our lives together. The word koinonia refers at its heart to our communion with God and to our communion and relationship with one another. And it's kind of used in a way to imply an interchangeability that our communion with God and our communion with one another is very, very closely connected. In the book of Acts, a passage that we looked at just a couple of weeks ago, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says about the earliest Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, for having communion with Christ, any comfort from his love, if you have any fellowship in the Holy Spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, he's talking about koinonia. I thought it was interesting that the second part of the passage today, second part of the reading, is another expression of koinonia, of deep community, of intimate, profound relationship. When we see that the Christians participated together in a kind of a radical generosity, a radical hospitality. We're actually going to double down on that second part of this text because next week we're also going to deal with this text in relationship to the text that comes following this. In Acts 2 and in Acts 4, two things are being connected. In this passage today, the first section of the passage of the reading today shows the disciples and the apostles in passionate prayer. They've been delivered from prison, some of them, and they are calling out to God for protection and for power and for boldness in their ministry. And they're not just doing it sort of quietly. They're doing it profoundly. And they're calling out to God, 
who is revealed in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're calling out to the God who has forgiven our sin, who is able to transform, and who is able to fill people and the world with God's power. You read that, that passage, you go over that, that we read with um, uh, in, the, in the scripture reading uh, just a few minutes ago. And this isn't any kind of mealy mouth kind of prayer. This is real prayer from real people who believe in a real God. And they use that biblical imagery of God, won't you come with your outstretched arm? These people believe in a God who is involved in human life, not a God who is a myth, not a God who is far away, but a God who shows up each and every day in powerful and miraculous ways. That's the kind of God, old-fashioned religion, some people call it. But in reading through the book of Acts and the apostles as our spiritual mentors and spiritual directors and our discipleship examples, there's no getting away from the reality and the presence and the power of God. This isn't a time, you know, just to fold up our hands and to philosophize and to kind of put God in a box. These people really believe that God shows up and makes a difference, that he heals, that he saves people, that he transforms human life. They ask for signs and wonders. They ask for miracles that we can't explain, that we don't understand, that we don't even have categories to really be able to explain and articulate them. But they want God to show up in and through their ministries and in and through the power and the boldness of their proclamation in a way that shakes up their listeners in a way that shakes up the culture, in a way that shakes up people's assumptions, people's ways of thinking about God. And they ask this boldly, and it looks like God grants their prayer. It looks like God shows up. And throughout the book of Acts is this story of God exhibiting his power and his presence through this unbridled desire that God has to be seen, to be revealed, to be experienced by human beings. He chooses to do it in the book of Acts through the disciples of Jesus Christ, known as the apostles, known as the early Christians. But in each of those passages, Acts 2, where you get this amazing preaching in Acts 4, where you get this passionate prayer, this old-fashioned religion, maybe, this kind of religion that in our culture often is sort of set aside and sort of is explained away as a kind of a, a, a mythological way to think about God, a sort of an unrealistic religion, a kind of otherworldly preoccupation. What also the disciples experience is they also experience in relationship to this radical prayer, to this radical faith in a living, breathing God. A God who is transcendent and yet imminent at 
the same time in our experience. What they also experience is this radical, deep community. This rearranging of relationships, this rearranging of economics, this, this kind of new political or new politics that come through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These things go hand in hand. And it's important for us in coming to this text this morning and coming to these texts in the book of Acts to recognize that this radical faith and this radical practice go together for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The witness is that you don't have one without the other. Communion with God, community with others. The mystical and the spiritual, the experiential and the practical and the social. Proclamation and evangelism and social justice. They seem to be held together. They seem to be in relationship. They seem to, one flows directly out of the other and points to the other. It's interesting in our passage this morning that, that after this description of radical reordering of people giving their money, selling their things, Luke then takes the time to say right in the middle of that description, the apostles kept on preaching. They kept on proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not like they gave their theology spiel here and then we all went out and did it together and made a big difference in the world. That's not the understanding. Our culture likes to define things by separating things, by putting things in boxes, by compartmentalizing, by listing, by separating things that so often need to go together, and the book of Acts knows nothing of that kind of modern approach to reality. The book of Acts and the description of the apostles knows nothing about that temptation for specialization, for theology, and for ethics, or for prayer, and for social practice. The two things are held beautifully and wonderfully together. The challenge that we face, though, is that over the history of God's people, there has tended to be a kind of a separation of these two things. And so for lack of a better term, we've, we have the spiritual churches, the theological churches, the, the devotional churches, the orthodox churches, the charismatic churches, stressing the power and presence of God, stressing salvation through Jesus, stressing the Holy Spirit, stressing worship and scripture and prayer and the experience of forgiveness. And on the other side, throughout the history of the church, is this, this kind of more social emphasis, stress on the physical and the social and the economic changes that the church participates in, political participation, social change, human Reconciliation. But in Acts 2 and Acts 4, these pieces are sewn beautifully together. They flow into and out of each other. They are the taken-for-granted reality of Christian discipleship and worship.
For the apostles, they assume that by gathering here and worship, we don't even have to say that we love the city and we're called to serve the city and to love the world. They assume by being in the presence of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they assume that that kind of worship, that kind of prayer, issues in a kind of a deep life response. So the two things are seen as being together. David Bebbington, an English theologian and historian, is credited with coming up with four tenets of describing the characteristics of evangelicals. Evangelical is a broad movement and expression of the Christian faith. Knox Church very much has seen itself in that broader expression of what it means to be an evangelical. And David Bebbington, through his study, he is an expert. Probably nobody knows more about the evangelical movement um, in the world than David Bebbington. David Bebbington identifies four things, four characteristics that mark evangelicals. Conversion, the transformation of human beings because of Jesus. The Bible, the scriptures as the central authority in the life of the Christian in the church. Cross-centeredness, the centrality of the life and the death of Jesus Christ as the source of the redemption for humanity. And activism, interestingly enough, that Christians who go by evangelical realize that they are called to participate in the world, in reform, in change, in transformation. So often the church has divided these things. So often there have been the churches that have been preaching and proclamation and the salvation of their soul and everything else is a distraction. And there are churches and Christian traditions that seem the preaching of the apostles, the specificity, the historicity, the actuality as a kind of a mythological distraction. And what the real game in town is, is to change the world to feed people, to rescue people, to protect people, to change the structures of society. And what you see in this radical communism in Acts chapter 4 of people selling their property, selling their goods in order to give new life to other people so that no one goes without is just the all-in character of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. For some of those churches, they don't see that the practice of the bread and wine and the sharing in communion with God in this most sacred practice of communion is very much related to our calling in the world. In a church that I was in for years, one of the things that we would do after we celebrated communion together is um, because of the nature of the architecture of the building, which actually Knox just upgraded itself to be able to do this practice, we would regularly turn to the windows that looked onto the bus stop, that looked onto the plaza across the street, that looked onto the condos, and we would say together, after we had received the body of Jesus given for us, we would proclaim together to our community, we are the body of Jesus 
given for you. To remind us of this connection of orthodoxy and orthopraxis that the apostles practice and witness to so beautifully as a definition of discipleship. The church that I grew up in, a little independent Bible church in a small town in the middle of nowhere, 30, 40 minutes out of Toronto, was a Bible-believing, Christ-centered, conversion-oriented little church. We were into preaching. We were into people getting converted. We were into their Christian discipleship. But what I remember that impacted me the most in my 25 or so years in that little church is how that church cared for people who were in trouble, particularly in the case of my family. Now, in, in, in working on this sermon this morning, I didn't know that my mom really was going to be with us in worship today, but she is, so she's going to have to hear this. And you can ask her to corroborate the truthfulness of it as I go. My dad died at a very young age, 39 years old. And from the week after he passed away and before, for months, a family in our church named the Pecks, who were local farmers, provided us with food week after week after week after week after week. We never knew what we were going to get. Whatever it was in season, it was at the end of our car in the, park, in the church parking lot across the road from the church building. And as that happened, week after week after week after week, month after month after month after month, young people like my sister and I, who was 15 and 10, you start to learn an added new feature of what it means to be Christian in difficult times. My mom became a working widow responsible for raising two kids on her own, and previously, while she was married, she had not worked. So her life was completely changed. And yet our church participated with her along the way. At one time, when she needed a vehicle, they provided a vehicle for us. When it came time for me in that little church, because they affirmed my call to pastoral ministry, they paid my way to seminary. And later on, as I continued my graduate studies in the United States, a single person in our church stood up and offered to pay the entire price for us to live for 18 months with Karen and a baby, not working, so that I could study. No strings attached. And what I learned, and why texts like this come alive to me, is that believing in the God who sent Jesus to save the world means directly that that world is going to be shaken by the Holy Spirit. And we get invited to participate in that shakenness. Not just a little stirring, shaken to the core. Really, really shaken by the power and the presence and the fullness of God. Thomas Kelly 
An American Quaker theologian writes this, there is an experience of the eternal breaking into time which transforms all of life in a miracle of faith and action. Unspeakable, profound, and full of glory as an inward experience, it is the root of concern for all of creation, the true ground of social endeavor. This inner life and outward concern are truly one whole and where possible ought to be described simultaneously, which is what Luke is doing in describing preaching and profound generosity. Preaching Jesus, offering people the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and living in the Jesus way filled with the Holy Spirit is what the apostles achieve for us in their apostolic ministry. One well-known Christian theologian used to explain the connection between proclamation and evangelism and social justice, the ministry of social justice in this way. He used the analogy of scissors. He said that proclamation and social justice are like two sides of the scissors. And what Christians are is they are people who use scissors and realize that you can only use scissors when they're cutting together through a material. And he pictured that being the way of God's people in the world, speaking boldly, sharing openly the truth of God's forgiving power, transforming power through Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit, and offering hospitality, and offering forgiveness, and working for reconciliation, and being present to the poor, and the tired, and the lonely, and the disenfranchised, and those who our economic and political systems have avoided. Rodney Stark, the American sociologist, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, is trying to figure out how this little cult, this little minority group of Christians, ended up being the dominant way of thinking and practice in the Roman Empire. And he starts to dig deeper on the sociology. And one of the explanations that he finds is that during the plagues in Rome, all of the upper classes vacated the city in order to get away from the sickness and from the germs. But what he realized and found out in his study that the Christians stayed. They stayed in the city, why? To care for each other and their neighbors. And what Stark argues is that the reputation of Christians flourished and multiplied because of the sacrifice of their everyday friendships and fellowship. And so what started to happen is that the sacrifice of Jesus became paralleled, paralleled in the sacrifice of the Christians. And people started to realize that Christians know something about what it means to live truthfully and in the good. And Stark argues that these kind of witnesses both in word and deed, are how the Holy Spirit began to get the attention of a watching world and a listening 
audience. William Willimon says this, when you think about it, the quality of the church's life together is evidence for the truthfulness of the resurrection. The most eloquent testimony for the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds community that there is no explanation other than something happened actually in history. The tough task of interpreting the reality of a truth like the resurrection is not so much the scientific or the historical question, how could this happen, but the ecclesiastical and the communal question, why don't people look more resurrected? How do you learn to spell the Christian faith? How do we learn the grammar of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? How do we live into the syntax of signs and wonders and radical hospitality and radical economic generosity? One way that we do it as good evangelicals is we go back to an authority, which is what we're doing in our church these days. We're going back to the book of Acts to open our hearts and to humble ourselves to our ancestors, for our forebears, to that first generation of disciples in order to get a glimpse and maybe even a little bit of a punch or a shot in terms of what God's Holy Spirit is calling us to do and to be in these days. May God bless us as Knox Presbyterian Church. May God bless each of you in your journey and in your discipleship to be able to become the kind of people whose lives so radically witness to the power of Jesus and his resurrection, to the power of the Holy Spirit in his life-changing ways. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, that your word does not defy belief, but that your word encourages a deepening of faith. We pray that your word today in the book of Acts and next week and the week after, as we listen, and as we give ourselves to understanding how the church developed and grew, we pray that you would speak to us about how our church is being called to develop and to grow. We do these things for your glory and for the goodness of the world. We thank you that you have outstretched your arm and in a very real way you've sent your son to live and to die and to rise again. We thank you that you've sent your Holy Spirit, the living presence of God, to be among us and to call us and to protect us and to provide for us in our mission in the world. As we come to this table today, we pray that you would feed us on your truth and on your love and on your forgiveness and your mercy and your grace given to us through Jesus. Make us a people capable of being fed and feeding others. Amen.